Welcome to this week's episode of Zach on Film. The whole gang's back together. Steven's right across from me. Hello. Uh, Rodrigo's all the way on the other side of the internet. Hey, man. And Matthew is back. He's in the middle of the internet. Oh, yeah, right here in the middle. I was, I was thinking about Zach the other day. He's a little guy, kind of funny looking. Uh, yeah, so as Matthew alluded to and we talked about last week, we are doing Fargo this week on Zach on Film. And uh, actually, Stephen, this is going to be a whole month of Cohen Brothers. Whole month of Cohen Brothers, since you're so lacking I, in a Cohen education. Yeah, what did we watch? Hell Caesar last week, and I, when I mentioned that, I didn't watch like two Cohen Brothers films. Yeah, and so, so the yeah. alarms were sounded. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. it's like well, we, a deja vu of starting this podcast all over again. Yep. Zach, hasn't I'm not going to say movies. that I agree with Stephen on on this one, but I don't disagree with him. Yes. You do need Cohen Brothers. So we have a whole uh, a couple more movies lined up in the month to round out July, which mm-hmm. is Cohen Brothers Month. Mm-hmm. So no going to the theater for us. Mm-mm. We're going to save our money and spend it on old rentals. Mm-hmm. I think we should call it Where You Cohen Month. Or Cohen South. Cohen to the movies. Oh, That's now, what it is. Now you're just stretching it. Um, so Fargo, one of the Fargo. Cohen Brothers' first movies. Uh, it was what, 1996. So yeah. I was uh, a wee five-year-old when this film came out. My parents did not take <laughs> me to it. Um, but did you three have the chance of seeing it in theaters? Never saw it in the theater. For whatever reason, I don't know why. I was a wee 26-year-old. I didn't go to the theater, kind of like now. But I did see it on VHS, which, for those of you listening, is kind of like a DVD-only squarer. In order to go, uh, I, you're yeah, I also I also didn't see it when it came out in the theater. Um, I probably didn't see it until college. Mm-hmm. So is that? I mean, what what was everyone's like first experience of this film? I had a friend who just loved the accents so much, <sighs> and loved the fact that the main character was female and pregnant that she just totally oversold it to me and kept doing the voice. And finally, I had to sit down and watch the freaking movie. And she was right. It's one of the rare things where I agree with her on movies. She says that black and white movies are bad and stupid. But this one, she was dead solid. It's really, really significant. It's really, really good. I think it was probably after O Brother War Art Thou. I got onto some Coen Brothers kick, so I went and sat through Big Lebowski, Fargo, Hudsucker Proxy, Barton Fink, all of that. Oh, really? Around the same time, yeah. Okay, so it wasn't... Well, I guess Oh, Brother Mark came out 2000, later than I thought. 2000, in 2000. In 2000. Oh, gosh. Yeah. It's only, it's only four years after. Oh, okay. For some reason, I was pegging that like the middle 2000s, but Mm-mm. I was way off. No. Oh, all right. So, not too far after it. Um, but this is probably, in my mind, the Coen Brothers film that gets referenced the most, or at least talked about the most... Um, maybe in, Big Lebowski. In, yeah, I guess probably that. But I've heard about Fargo so much, and maybe it's because there's a television show running right now on yeah. FX because of that. Which yeah. has anyone watched? I did, no. and I stopped about just over the midway point of the first season because the TV show is is really an expanded retelling of the movie, mm-hmm. and I'd already seen the movie, so I don't want to see an expanded retelling. Although a lot of the things that are in the TV show have been altered greatly from what we see in the um, uh, in the movie. For example, the Lundergan guy is um, insurance salesman instead of a car salesman, mm-hmm. those kinds of things. But it's the same basic premise. And to me, it wasn't interesting because it's like, come on, get on with it. Let's get to, you know, let's finish up this story. Yeah. So, eh. Has it's, anyone else watched it? I have not. 
A lot no, of people my, like it. My DVR was full. I've heard a lot of people saying that it's really, really good and that it's like an alternate universe version of what you see in this well, film. The TV show is supposed to technically be set in the same universe as this movie. Mm-hmm. And if you watch the movie, you know that there's a part where um, Bushimi's character goes and buries the million dollars mm-hmm. or, right. uh, you know, eighty eight hundred thousand dollars yeah. or nine hundred and eighty thousand dollars uh, <laughs> in the opening part of um, in the in the Fargo TV show. There's this guy that owns this big uh, grocery store chain, and it's revealed that his family was down on their luck um, driving through. South Dakota when the car broke down and the dad was crawling out in the snow to pray to God or something <laughs> that some miracle would come upon him. And he happened to see that ice pick in the snow, the oh. ice scraper in the snow, dug up the money. And that's how they had the money to start their grocery store chain. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Wow. So it's kind of that's that's kind of the connection between huh. the, the two movies. And that's then, of course, sweet. there's this whole murder kidnap okay. uh, thing sure. going on, too. So, yeah. So that's kind of the premise of Fargo, if anyone hasn't seen it is that William H. Macy plays Jerry Lundergaard, who's yep. this kind of bumbling car Schlubby, salesman type uh, of guy who has an idea. He wants to get on this business proposition and is, I think he might be going bankrupt and has come up with this plan. Of, he, he has apparently embezzled a lot of money from GMAC. Yeah. And so he's in, he's, he's in some hot water and so comes up with an idea of he will hire some lowlifes to kidnap his wife so that his very rich father-in-law will pay the ransom and then he can skim most of that money off mm-hmm. and uh, pay off what he owes and start this big parking lot scheme that apparently he's found uh, that's going to make him uh, very rich and everything's going to end up happy and lucky and everyone will be fine. Uh, unfortunately, the body stopped dropping kind of fast in this film. Yeah, well, when you're hiring... Yeah. When you're hiring people who are probably ne'er do wells, uh, you can expect that there's going to be a lot of a lot of blood. And and soon as they start the kidnapping, sure enough, they start killing people, starting with a police officer, then two people uh, who are driving by and witness it, and then mm-hmm. they kill um, Lindergren's uh, um, father-in-law, right. then his wife, then um, the guy working the toll toll booth guy. Yeah, the yeah. body the body count racks up it's pretty really quickly high. in this movie. Well, and only one of them is really a ne'er-do-well. The other one is sort of a psycho killer who will murder you for no reason at all. Just to say. Exactly. And he is the scariest person in the world. If I ever met Peter Stormare in a dark alley, <laughs> I would die. That is, that is it. I would fall over and I would die. Note to self. <laughs> higher. Halloween <laughs> costume 2016. Not Halloween costume. Just get the real guy. <laughs> Um. Yeah. One of the hitmen. I was. I was like, "Where is this guy? I know this guy." And I finally, at the end of the movie, got his IMDb page. I was like, "Oh, he's in the Big Lebowski as mm-hmm. one of the nihilists." Yeah. Uh, that would not be for another two years after this. Is that right? Yeah. This came out before. Like yeah. In uh, '98 is when Lebowski came out. Okay. So yeah, that's one thing that is nice about the Coen Brothers is they find actors that they like mm-hmm. and they continue to find roles for them, like um. Uh, John Goodman, for example, appears in oh, yeah. a lot of their movies just because they like working with him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and same way with um, with our bad guy here. Uh, same way. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's nice to see. And, of course, Frances McDormand, but uh, she's married to one of them. So. And, you know, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, who won an Oscar for her performance. This mm-hmm. film won two, this and Best Writing from mm-hmm. the Coen Brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So this is something I found very interesting about this. Is this movie is called Fargo. And no one, I was like, they were in what Minnesota for most of the movie, right? Mm-hmm. I was like, what, what, are, what are you doing here? I thought we were going to be in the Dakotas in most of this movie. That was just a, a bold trick they p- pulled on us. It, it only gets mentioned one time. It's like mm-hmm. that's where he goes to hire these hit mm-hmm. hitmen, right? And then his wife's like, oh, did you have fun in Fargo? Mm-hmm. Uh, like Rod- Rodrigo, what is the deal with calling this movie Fargo? It's interesting, you know, it's like, um, so uh, this movie is about, um, kind of there's, there's a plan and the plan kind of starts falling apart pretty much right away. So you can, you can say that even though Fargo is only featured at the beginning, thematically the movie's called Fargo because that's where it all goes wrong. Mm -hmm. Like from the offset, they're in Fargo and it all goes wrong. You could also look at it as they're just having fun with the audience, you know, because the movie starts off by saying, hey, the events of this movie really happen. And they mm-hmm. really don't. I mean, they really I mean, <laughs> they they, they've said three different times, three different stories that inspired this. Mm-hmm. And each time they keep changing their story. So it's not really inspired by any actual events. So, yeah. you know, they they continue to do this again and again and again throughout the movie. And, um, you know, even to the point where the ending of the movie is almost a joke, right? Where from the very beginning, you're introduced to, um, the chief of police and her husband, and he's a painter of ducks and the big payoff at the end of the movie is, oh yeah, he got the, uh, he got the three cent stamp for the, for the ducks. Mm -hmm. And that's really kind of the, the simple story of, of everything revolving around there. So they're really just kind of having, even though this is, uh, categorized under, I think it's categorized under drama. Uh, crime drama crime drama thriller. yeah it's it's really got a lot of tongue in cheek humor in it i mean it's really dark humor but they're it's, it's they're joking with sure. they're joking with the audience throughout well you couldn't call it brainerd or bismarck which are the other locations in the film cuz those both sound well uh, uh, forgive me minnesota but silly twin so, cities twins <laughs> you can't do that but i think fargo in some ways is like the not necessarily the quote unquote MacGuffin to use the awesome term that people hate when I use, but it's the place where you, where everything gets set into motion. Like Rodrigo said, everything goes wrong, but he has to go to Fargo to start all this mess to try and dig himself out of the trouble that he's gotten himself into. So Fargo is representative of his, his journey into darkness and also getting arrested in a bathroom. Uh yeah, so I just want to touch on the the true nature of it because I'm watching it and then it comes up and you have no reason to not believe it when you're first watching this film. Of course, then I start uh, one of my first Google searches right after this is Fargo movie true story. Right, right. <laughs> and uh, luckily enough, it just happens to be the 20th anniversary of this film this year. Mm-hmm. So they've been doing some anniversary uh, edition type stuff for this, and there's a lot of articles going around talking about the true nature of this film. Uh, which as Steven alluded to, is not true uh, in really any sense besides uh, two stories or two plot points they pointed to was there was a guy back in the 60s who was like scamming GM Mm -hmm. and then that some, I think, woman in Massachusetts put like her person she killed through a wood chipper. Yeah. And that's kind (laughs) of the only things that are potentially true in this film but they just pretty much said they wanted to do something in this quote-unquote true crime 
type movie genre mm-hmm. and then wrote this fiction tale. Well, when you think about it, though, when you look at a lot of their other other movies kind of also fall into this as well. Um, the Man Who Wasn't There kind of has a weird murder plot point to it. Um, Barton Fink mm-hmm. is all psycho killer uh, <laughs> type stuff. Mm-hmm. And then um, uh, you've got the somewhat murder mystery swap in Big Lebowski. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lady Killers is all about killing people left and right. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, they they, uh, they like to uh, kill off people in their stories. Um, so, and it seemed like that to me, the I mean, hitting on the Fargo and the place that the location of the story made it something else besides the fact that we're going to overdo, you know, accents. Mm-hmm. There was this feeling of things aren't great because it's always cold, everyone's bundling up, and you can't really see well. And that the location, the location played such an important part into this story because if this story um, was in Texas, right. it would have a completely different feeling, right? Um, and so putting it up there, uh, besides the fact that I guess they're from Minneapolis, mm-hmm. um, does add a different element to the story. Especially, in what way? well, especially I felt like in the cinematography, th- there is this nature of um, kind of sparseness mm-hmm. and. Um, kind of dread almost besides the fact that I hate the snow so that adds a lot into my reading of all of the yeah, shots yeah um but it adds to this sense of everything is not kind of great what we're doing and um maybe there's just like not many people here it was just in like a yeah, it, 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 give, it, it just give seem, a different feeling it does feel very sparse it does feel very desolate and isolated mm-hmm. and I, I guess if you want to continue on with that you could say that you know when it's nice and snowy out when you have a nice blanket of snow everything everything looks nice and pretty and tranquil and happy mm-hmm. but really it's in this case of the story it's not because right under the surface is bloody snow and body parts <laughs> and overturned cars and those kinds of things yeah so. and, and I guess that kind of hits on a, a big feeling of this film for me in that where I found the humor in that there was this, uh, you know, police chief who's investigating these murders, but mm-hmm. the overdoing of all their accents made everything sound so darn cheerful, and everyone just seemed so happy. While everyone was dying. Yeah, that's the, the I, Minnesota nice accent. Yeah, which, I need to make an important point here. My friend Carl, you remember Carl? Carl's mother is from Shakopee, Minnesota. That is how she talks. That mm-hmm. is how her family talks. These are not exaggerated accents based on these people that I've heard talking. That's no. the thing that, yet, you know, no, when that's you think what I, about this is. That's what I said when we talk about the Minnesota nice accent. That is that mm-hmm. accent. But the thing that is is maybe pushed a little bit too far is in uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul, the accent is reduced quite considerably. So it's not it's not still as heavy as it was when they were in the big city as it was portrayed in the film. Also, I only say that because I saw uh, Fred uh, Armisen from SNL on one of the late night shows the other day, <laughs> and they were he was just doing accents, and they told him to do Fargo, and he was like, oh, in his accent, it's not the same as in the movie, because mm-hmm. apparently he just knows everyone's accent. Mm-hmm. Um, that's <laughs> the only place I was basing all that information off of, that I, I, I default to him on all accent knowledge. Okay. So uh, this movie also, um, like many of the films we first started with Zach on film, made it into the Library of Congress. Right. 
back in the early 2000s. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is one of only a couple films to ever make it on its first run as, mm-hmm. at the registry. Mm-hmm. Um, why? It, it was only 10 years later after this movie released. Why do you think this movie made such a big splash that it, it reached that status so fast? I think there's a shock value to it. I mean, again, think back to 1996. You've got, um, of course, you've had the um, Silence of the Lambs. That's a pretty shocking, horrific movie. Mm-hmm. This one's just kind of light and kind of a different quirky nature to it that when you get to this shocking events of these people are just pulling out guns and shooting people in the head or shooting someone's jaw off or chopping someone up in a wood chipper, it suddenly becomes a little bit more shocking and, and let's pay attention to it around, as we've said, this this nice blanket of snow or the Minnesota nice accent that kind of gives it a counterbalance to the graphic horror of the of the movie. Um, then the fact that you've got some great acting by Francis McDormand and uh, Macy, mm-hmm. uh, and then um, you've got some great cinematography in it as well, dealing with, granted, it, w- it was the warmest winter that they had shot this in, but still dealing with the elements and telling the story outside so much, I think makes it makes it striking and does create something that is unique and different in this film narrative. I mean, most of the time when we're looking at winter type uh, movies, with the exception recently mm-hmm. of um, um, Revenant, the Revenant, most of that stuff before '96, you would be in a soundstage if you're doing a lot of stuff out in the snow, mm-hmm. or you'd be doing really short takes. Uh, so a lot, or you'd be using a lot of fake snow in a warmer climate, but this is, let's get out there in the element. So I think there's a lot of things that can be, um, attributed to Fargo that makes it worthy of becoming, um, part of the national film registry. Is there anything that you think Steven missed Rodrigo to kind of hitting it on why it should have that status? I, I think people were, uh, really impressed by it and, and really what is, um, the the thing that's impressive about Fargo is that it does a murder mystery sort of or, or or a murder investigation type movie, but it puts it in a setting that people wouldn't expect, yep. and the setting greatly informs the characters, right? So that is that is what Fargo is. That it's where it gets that huge. That's where that tension comes from because we are so trained to start any uh, movie with. New York City yeah, yeah. with say, a thousand people. If this if this was an episode of Law and Order, people wouldn't have blinked. Right, yeah. and it, and that's exactly right. Uh, by the way, part of the reason why this is interesting is because this movie is also not an episode of Law and Order. It's actually an episode of Columbo. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The difference being that in Columbo, you know who the murderer is, and you just see Columbo slowly circling towards them as he like gets closer and closer and closer to them. And weirdly that builds excitement, even though you want Columbo to succeed and the bad guys to be caught, you see them become progressively more desperate. And, uh, this is kind of what you see in Fargo. It's that kind of story, which also we don't see in movies very often. Usually movies go for the murder mystery angle. Mm -hmm. You don't know who did it. Or, you know, maybe you go over something uh, like Seven, where it kind of doesn't matter who did it, just that these shocking things are happening, right? Mm -hmm. Well, and then also the fact that you see Macy's character just spiral Mm -hmm. as the situation Mm -hmm. goes out of control and he becomes more and more erratic and to the point where he is just at a loss to what do I do next is fascinating character study stuff. Oh, yeah. No, definitely. Uh, Zach, have you seen any episodes of Columbo? 
Uh, no, I actually don't even know what. Go you watch speak the first of. episode of Columbo, directed by Steven Spielberg. <laughs> and then and then watch a good episode of Columbo. <laughs> yeah. after. Watch one of the ones that isn't terrible. Yeah. So when, what's the premise of Columbo? He's a detective. So Columbo, yeah. Mm-hmm. Columbo is basically a murder mystery in reverse. The, each episode generally opens with the murder. We know who it is. We spend time with the murderer. Yeah. And then we see them interacting with uh, the main we, character, Lieutenant Columbo. We who see is, the murder being committed. Right. Mm-hmm. Who's usually – he is regarded as this schlub. He's this guy in a dirty overcoat who wanders around and he plays it to the hilt that he's just a crank. And as the as the story goes on, you see him slowly putting it together. The man is brilliant, mm-hmm. and the acting that just amazing. The stuff mm-hmm. that he does, yeah. He, and of course, when when the bad guys are trying to lie to him, he keeps feeding them stuff so that they have to keep lying. Yeah, he kind of like he plays like social traps for them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He, he plays in. People dismiss him as an idiot or somebody to be disregarded because of his it's appearance a, a and the fool. way that he approaches the case so you know he'll ask them simple questions that they don't think has anything to do with the investigation yet turns out to be completely involved with how he's tying everything together so yeah he solves the the mystery in reverse and they are fun shows to watch um but they were you know 1970s through 1982 or something like that so okay yeah you can always get like you know a good leonard nimoy or gary owens appearance depending on when you kick i want to say shatner was actually on it twice playing two different characters Mm -hmm. it happens so you're saying there's no like uh horrible horrible pun to start the show and then like a screaming uh, guitar solo to begin it Mm -mm. no you're thinking of the Rockford Files. No, no, <laughs> definitely not thinking of the Rockford Files. Uh, one question I had while watching this, especially as, you know, our uh, police uh, captain starts making more of an appearance in the film, is kind of mm-hmm. who is the focal character and lead character of this film? Because I believe William H. Macy's character is billed first, but mm-hmm. it feels... Like, I don't know if there's a, a point in the film specifically where it switches to more of McDormand's character well, or again, if it if, really is that way the whole time. If you're looking at it from this Columbo perspective, mm-hmm. Lundergaard, William H. Macy's character, mm-hmm. is the bad guy. And we are following what is motivating him and what is he trying to do to carry out his plot, to cover up his plot, to resolve his side of the argument. And then the other is this slow chase by... Um, Marge Gunderson, mm. who is following the clues and tracking everyone to the conclusion mm. and trapping Macy's character in the end. So you have a good guy, bad guy uh, situation, mm-hmm. and both of them play that play those parts that they're supposed to in this show. The fact that we're getting to see both of them, very much like we would see crisscross, strangers on a train um, kind of mm-hmm. action, we get to see the motive of the bad guy throughout, of the villain throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This actually is weird because we see bits and pieces of Marge's life and Jerry's life and even the life of uh, Steve Buscemi and Scary Peter Stormari that don't really have a lot to do with the specifics of the plot, but all seem to tie back into it and, and bring the whole thing together. And I think that's what makes the storytelling stand out from just a standard you know, murder flick or a noir movie where somebody's been killed and Humphrey Bogart is going to figure it out. That Marge kind of figures out that Jerry may not be what it seems when her former crush from high school shows up and turns out that he's a lying jerk, even though he seems like a nice guy. And it's it's all something that it feels messy and a lot of things feel 
unresolved or certain plot points arise that don't feel like they're fully ingrained in the story and yet it all comes together at the end and it all works its way into the plot that the characters inform what's going on here. I mean, uh, Jerry's whole conversation where he's trying to sell the man the car is not really specific to the plot, but it shows the desperation and it shows that he's not necessarily the best salesman. He's not the brightest bulb at the bottom of the barrel, but he's really, really good at confusing and irritating people until they just agree to pay nineteen five and tell him to shut up. It's, it's it's that kind of attention to the character moments and the details that really make this kind of stand out for me anyway. Yeah, we've definitely – part of what makes Fargo stand out is that we've seen slick murder mysteries or, or murder-based shows. And we've seen gritty crime dramas. But we don't get a lot of crushingly mundane crime dramas. Mm-hmm. Like there's something about Fargo, the fact that, you know – she goes out all the way to her car, tries to start it, comes all the way back into the house, and the shot does not move. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then she's like, oh, I need a jump. Prowler oh, needs a jump. And what's yep. great is you see um, her husband played by, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, the guy, Carey's Drew Carey's brother. Drew Carey's brother. <laughs> <laughs> Norm, John, John Carroll Lynch. Yeah. Um, just, you know, he's just sitting there doing some great acting by him because he just sits there and he's like, oh, well, here's my left wife's leftover breakfast. I'll take a bite of it. Mm, it's pretty good. I'll sit there and I'll continue to do my business. And mm-hmm. your attention is focused on that to where you you really see Marge walk out the door and you think that's the end of it. And so mm-hmm, we're focused right. on on her husband. And then suddenly she's back in and says, oh, I need to get the car jumped. Yep. It's, it's great. It's on. a great little scene. It's a great to me. It's like. Everything you think is nice about Minnesota, mm-hmm. they show you in here. The politeness, the happiness, um, you know, the just the normal everyday mundane things. Mm-hmm. But then at the at the core of it, there's murder. Yeah. And Fargo really shows us kind of this interesting team up of writing and editing, right? It's like, how long do you hold a scene for? How long do you hold a shot for? And part of that is writing, but a big part of it is editing. I remember mm-hmm. there's a scene where... Um, uh, William H. Macy's character is like kind of shot down about his uh, parking lot uh, idea and he looks down and we immediately cut to the outside to the point where I was like, oh, did, is he looking down at the parking lot? And it's mm-hmm. like, nope, he's just now cutting across. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is like some of the cuts are very jarring. Some of the cuts are, you know, exactly the sort of like normal, satisfying cut you'd expect. And some of the cuts are very long. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all kind of made to build uh, this kind of murder slash like just any other day in Minnesota kind of uh, thing mm-hmm. back and forth. Every so, time you see Marge and Norm together, they're either in bed or eating. Eating, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I love that bit. I, I just love that expectation that she's busy at work, so that's the time she has to to talk to her husband. But it keeps coming up, and they, you know, there's that long scene where they're walking down the buffet, mm-hmm. and it's just this brilliant character building bit. She's getting everything, everything, no to the loot fisk, and then you move on, and it, it's just really, really charming stuff. And then you remember, oh yeah, somebody's going in a wood chipper. Yeah, and and you hardly, you know, he hardly says anything in this movie, he, mm-hmm. it, which makes him kind of this very deep thought 
kind of character. He's so involved in his painting of these ducks and so right. And she intent. doesn't. And she it's, doesn't. Yeah, she doesn't bring work home at all. Right. Like, mm-hmm. She doesn't say, "Well, oh, oh, and by the way, I solved that murder mystery." Like it's all about the ducks. Yeah, yeah. And end. and he's just all you know. He's just he's so stressed out about the ducks, <laughs> and he's always you know he's always in some kind of contemplative thinking. mood throughout the entire movie where he's just sitting there just in deep thought about something and you're wondering since he's a duck painting what is he what is he thinking about is he thinking about the competition (laughs) is he thinking about how he's going to pose this duck is he thinking about if the mallard that he submitted is really the the winning the winning piece you're wondering if there's good fricassee at the first this afternoon it's it's just it's just really funny how he just brings that character forth rodrigo had mentioned um editing Mm -hmm. film edited by roderick james right um, and this was up for an Academy Award in editing as well. Mm. Interesting thing was because the movie was produced, directed, written by Ethan and Joel uh, Cohen, they didn't want their names to appear under the editing as well because they're the ones who edited this movie. Oh, And so they made up this name, Roderick James. Well, because it was up for an Academy Award, they were like, oh, what should we do in, in getting uh, if we win? What, what will happen? And they had wanted, um, what's his name? Um, this is your Latin, um, the Life Review movie, uh, comedian. Gosh, now I forget. Gary Shandling? No, 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 not Gary Shandling. Albert Brooks. Albert Brooks. They oh. wanted Albert Brooks to go up <laughs> and accept the, accept the award, but the Academy was like, no, that wouldn't be acceptable. Because they were trying to keep oh, kind of quiet yeah. who this Robert James would be, and they were going to have Albert Brooks pretend to be this guy, <laughs> and the Academy was not going to. It's kind of almost like with uh, uh, what's his name going as Ali um, uh, G uh, oh. to accept oh, the award. Yeah, Sasha, and, Baron, yeah, Sasha yeah. Baron Cohen, where the Academy was like, "No, don't don't screw this up. Don't go in there and screw around with this." So they were kind of approaching the same way with with this film with mm-hmm. the uh, with the Robert James thing. So he's the third Cohen brother, by the way, Sasha Baron. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you mentioned the parking lot scene uh, with London Guard, which I felt that the scene leading up to a hit of him getting shot down by his father-in-law with even being told that it was a great find an idea and then being like, no, you're not capable of handling this. And, right. uh, and then cutting and then just like watching his spirits deteriorate mm-hmm. through that entire scene because mm-hmm. he came in so high. Tried to call off the kidnapping. He's like, "Oh, everything's gonna be fine now. We're gonna go in this. We're gonna partner together." And then just slowly beat him down. Right. And then to watch him walk across that parking lot to his car, and then just like go insane on the windshield, uh, mm-hmm. was some of the like the best bits of acting. Well, that then, one, those two scenes. Right. And film. then also there's a great reveal of how much he owes in this, right? Because originally when he's setting up the deal mm-hmm. with with our two criminals, he's like. You know, we'll ask for $80,000. I need $40,000. You guys will take Mm $40,000. We'll all be good. And then you're thinking, oh, so he only needs $40,000. So then when he goes to his father-in-law with the deal and he's going to get a finder's fee of $75,000 and he's like, well, that's that's not enough. That doesn't do anything for me. You're you're thinking, wait a minute. He only needed $40,000 to get out of his troubles. Mm-hmm. 75 should take care of that. And then you find out when GMAC calls, uh, you, we need $375,000. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly it sinks in. It's like, whoa, he is in big, he's in big trouble mm-hmm. with yeah. this. So it's, it's really well done how they build up to the fact that why is he asking for a million dollars when all he needs is, yeah. you know, 40,000. Yeah. So yeah, and he's it, lying across the board. Yeah. He's not a, he's not a good person. Well, that was the interesting thing is that when you said, 
you know, um, good character, bad character mm-hmm. reference to Leningrad, I was like, yeah, I guess he is a bad character, but the way he like acts throughout the entire film is you almost mm-hmm. feel sorry right. for him the entire you, oh, time. Oh, no, you do feel you sorry for empathize him. empathize with yeah. him. And, and the, the thing that's really important to remember is you you look at this movie and I think Peter Stormari is bad and Steve Buscemi is evil. It's Jerry who gets everyone killed. Mm-hmm. It is Jerry who puts all this in place. So at the end when he gets arrested, part of me is like, oh, that poor – wait, he just murdered no, eight people. Absolutely. There's there's the, the, the real genius of the way that uh, Lundergaard's character is written is that – he is someone who is like seems wholesome but is very willing to go the sketchy route to get what he wants mm-hmm. like he's clearly someone who doesn't have the force of personality to get what he wants up front so he has to pursue this backhanded uh these backhanded well, you, you need ways that of, of getting it yeah you need that so, well and so, it doesn't seem um it 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 does like um, because you never see him shoot anybody or do anything bad, mm-hmm. it's it's easy to think of him as kind of this victim of circumstance. But every every bit of trouble that he gets into, it's his own doing. It's because he's right. pursuing this money after he embezzled some money. Like he's just, you know, he's he's uh, sleeping in the bed he made, basically. Right. Mm-hmm. Flip that with the TV show that uh, has Martin Freeman as Nygaard. Um, this guy who is just totally henpecked by his wife. She's just this shrew that's just always putting him down left and right. Of course, he's always getting put down at this insurance sales job, just getting mm-hmm. put down left and right until one moment in the middle of the night, he just, he's had enough with his wife and he wants to, and he's going to pay somebody to come in and kill her. He ends up accidentally killing his wife by accident. Oh. And then he's throughout the rest of that first season, he's trying to cover up the fact that, the guy that came in that was supposed to kidnap and potentially murder his wife gets shot. And then there's this whole investigation of why did Martin Freeman's character get by with a minor bullet wound to the hand when everyone else in the house is dead, including the chief of police. Um, You kind of feel a little bit more sorry for the Martin Freeman character in the TV show than you do for the William H. Macy character in the movie, because you're right. You could feel sorry for Macy, but he's put himself into these situations and has gone as far to say as, hey, kidnap my wife. Let's do a, a plot where Martin Freeman's character just totally flips out and loses it and just hits his wife in a moment of, of anger that he's never done before and kills her. And then he has to try and cover it up. So it's it's really kind of different in the way that the two um, villains of these two, the movie and the TV show, were portrayed. So if I would say, if you want to watch the Fargo TV show, there's nothing wrong with it. I just thought it was a little bit too long, but it's still very good. And they've got some great actors in there. Billy Bob Thornton, Martin Freeman uh, is it, just, it's just really good as, as far as the actors they have in that show. Um, also, when I was watching this based off mainly the big Lebowski, mm-hmm. when you're kind of winding down that film, and you think everything's done, and then there's probably still like another 15 minutes when uh, the dude and everyone and uh, what's his face are like dumping their friend's ashes and uh, going through that whole bit of the film where I was waiting for the point in Fargo when kind of the whole murder storyline was wrapped up, and then they the Coen brothers punched it at the end for. 
I, I feel like they tag the theme on at the end, essentially. And I hmm. feel like in this, it was Marge driving Murder Man away, saying about how... Um, more to life than money. More to life than money. Uh, three people was, in Brainerd, and for what? A little bit of money? Yeah, that whole that whole bit. And, but then, um, then when she gets home and is with uh, her husband... <laughs> they are in bed and they're already, you know, they're watching whatever, probably some bug documentary again. And she just, she just simply says, you know, we have it good. Like, we're fine. I don't mm-hmm. remember the line. It's, it's like a, a simple line of, you know, we have it pretty good here, Ned. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think doubling that with the money line is the Coen brothers being like, uh, yeah, money's not everything. And look at this couple where they didn't have, it didn't seem nearly as much money as Lundergaard's character even had, even though he was in massive debt. But, you know, they're fine because she's going to do her job and they're going to have a baby in two months and he's going to keep painting his ducks. Mm-hmm. And so it's almost kind of celebrating, I guess, that that simple, simple life. life. Yeah. Whenever they raise the postage, people need the little stamps. <laughs> and so, they, I, so, I mean, that while the entire movie I thought was great, I think it was a nice little tag mm-hmm. at the end uh, for this film. Mm-hmm. In, um, do the Coen brothers have a thing... Again, this is only my third of their movies. Of this bumbling, dumb idiot type character, because we see it here, Leonard Guard, and the dude is kind of is that. Well, and then Clooney's character and Hail Caesar is very and, much that as and well. Next, next week, when we watch the Hudsucker Proxy, we'll be introduced to Tim Robbins, who is a kind of an mm-hmm. idiot, mm-hmm. Um, a lovable idiot, but an mm-hmm. idiot nonetheless. Um, maybe, maybe, but there is something. There's something I don't want to say endearing, but there's something that you're like, he, it's a, the, the idiot, the idiot, idiot character is approachable and you feel for them a little bit more, perhaps, especially when they have to struggle to get their idea about, as you'll see next week, their idea across that ends up making the company a million dollars. And it just seems like a stupid idea. So you kind of like the force gumps of the world to win, right? Mm-hmm. You like to see mm-hmm. the, the down and out lowly person win. And I mm-hmm. think that that's kind of what happens with some of um, the Coen brothers characters is that they're kind of idiots. They're mm-hmm. kind of likable and you can, uh, you can associate with them to a, to an extent and you kind of feel good if they, if they win in the end mm-hmm. or if yeah, they, they kind of, they, they invert that. For instance, if you were to go and see say, I don't know the born identity, it's fun to imagine being Jason Bourne and being hyper competent and super capable and trained to deal with everything and shooty shooty bang bang boobity boobity boo. But really, there's a lot more Marge Gunderson in most of our lives. And the Coens are really good at making the characters, even, you know, who have, as Rodrigo put it, that crushing, grinding mundanity of their day-to-day life. Marge has some really, really great moments of detective work. She has her heroic moment where she shoots down the giant blonde monster man. She has really, really outstanding bits here. But when you break it down, she's just a nice lady from Brainerd who really likes a fricassee. And there's something about that, I think, especially for me as as a viewer, that I really would rather see a Marge Gunderson save the day than maybe, you know, a, a, a Jason Bourne. Or it's kind of the same thing when you, when you go and you see, you know, uh, we were talking about uh, Bruce Frassum, Ashley Williams in The, the Evil Dead. Oh, Bruce he's Campbell. Basically, yeah, Bruce Campbell. He's playing a screw-up. But yeah. he's a screw-up who kind of 
you know, transcends himself. And I think that's not a Coen Brothers movie, by the way. Don't don't think no. that I'm assuming it is. But yeah. when the Coen Brothers write these films, you have characters like, oh, I can't even remember his name. Nick Cage in um, Raising Arizona is an idiot. But he's an idiot where you appreciate his little triumphs. It's the same thing with uh, Lebowski. Yep. Jeffrey Lebowski is a jackass. <laughs> he, is, he is not a pleasant person. But there's a part of us that's with Jeffrey Lebowski, with the mm-hmm. dude, mm-hmm. every step of the way, that we wouldn't be if he really was the epitome of cool that yeah, he, he thinks he is. Yeah, or if he really was the detective, if he really was. Right. The- mm-hmm. if, he was if he was really Fonzie wrapped up with Columbo, we would not like him. It's the fact that he is this schlub. It's the fact that Marge is just this nice lady from Minnesota that makes those moments when she kind of goes, you know, action movie heroic or detective movie brilliant that really makes those moments stick out and sing. I think that's why this film is so significant because nobody in it is really a superhero, and, but a and lot the, of people have those great moments. Yeah. The casting's important for that because, you know, a lot of action movies and a lot of suspense movies try to set that up, right? It's like Jim, whatever was a family man. And then his wife and baby and dog were taken. Um, and it's like this this person has to rise above and become a super ninja to fight uh, the uh, Scottish mob. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, with this, you know, the fact that it is like a pregnant lady and that everybody is just kind of like a schlubby looking person. Um, you know, the stakes are still there. People are still getting killed. All these interesting things are still happening, but it's not unbelievable, right? The moment that you see Matt Damon in a movie, you're not like, oh, here's a normal person. Here's a perfectly normal person. It's like, no. Or Keanu as John Wick. I I didn't ever believe him as just the nice down-to-earth guy. So when he starts killing everybody in sight, you're just like, yep, that makes perfect sense. (laughs) Uh, By the way, uh, Bruce Campbell is in this movie. Is he? Yeah. Yeah, oh, fun. that's right. He's on the TV, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, he's the soap soap opera opera actor. Oh, <laughs> when he's when the woman's saying, "Oh, I'm pregnant," he's the he's the guy that she's talking to. Also, mm-hmm. also Jose Feliciano. Mm-hmm. Yes, in, uh, I love that in the most surprising cameo. Yeah, Paul Bunyan is in this movie, right? Yeah, no blue is locks. Prince though. is Prince in this movie because I saw in the credits <laughs> there was somebody that had like a symbol on it them. Is, the, the symbol <laughs> in the credits is that, but it's Prince, but yeah. it's not Prince. Okay, uh, it was one of the dead guys in the field because right, yeah. uh, Sarah immediately caught on that and and had to go look it up when we were watching this today. She's like, "Was that Prince in the field?" I'm like, no, that was not Prince in the field. That would be yeah. cool, though. He's be. from Minnesota. Yep. Yeah, look at that. And that's probably why he's in the credits. So, uh, in the in the in the definite ranking of Coen Brother films from each of you, it, where does this one fall on your lists? It's definitely on my list. Okay. <laughs> um, I would say it is definitely in the top six. All right, I'll take that, Matthew. Where does it land for you? Well, when you talk to me about Coen's, my number one is always going to be, oh, brother, where art thou? Mm-hmm. That's my number one. And it's a tough call for me whether this is number two with Lebowski as number three or whether this is number two with Lebowski as number three. 
because I think this is probably number two and Lebowski is number three. Raising Arizona is is close, close behind the Big Lebowski wherever it comes up. But I feel like I, I have a better connection to this movie than I do most of their work. Barton Fink scared me. Yeah, that's honest. a scary movie. It's definitely not <laughs> on our Cohen, Cohen month. I haven't seen all of their all of their work. I haven't seen Hail Caesar yet and I never saw True Grit. But eh, this is probably my number two or number three. I, I tend to go with their, their true comedies mm-hmm. a lot more. Yeah. So for me, it'd be Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, The Big Lebowski, um, then um, Raising Arizona, and then Fargo mm-hmm. is where it would fall. All right. But it's definitely in my top top six. What about, what about Blood Simple? Where does that fall? Uh, kind of low on the list. It's their first movie. I don't, think, I don't think it's that great. What about you, Dorigo? How much do you like Fargo? Uh, definitely more than The Big Lebowski, less than No Brother Where Art Thou. All right. I would say um, Fargo is definitely within my top, oh, now four Coen Brothers films. <laughs> <laughs> of the four Coen Brothers you've <laughs> seen, <laughs> it's in your this top four. definitely course. there. We didn't, yes. You didn't see True, True Grit? You know, I think... Because I know we talked about it at some point. We might. I might have. I don't think I paid attention enough to count it as okay. seeing it, though. All right. So maybe it's this is in my top five. I, sure? I was definitely in a house when people were watching it. Oh, okay. I can't remember if I actually watched the whole thing or not. Okay. All right. Or am I thinking of The Searchers? I thought we watched the original. Uh, we watched Searchers. We watched The Searchers. Yeah, we didn't, we didn't watch John Wayne, True, True Grit. And we didn't watch the remake either. No. So. Yeah. So, uh, so that is our first installment of Cohen to the movies. I'm taking Man, that, Matthew. We can say yeah! two. We can say our second installment. Yes! Second installment, sure. Second in this in this. Uh, yeah. List. So what is up next week, Stephen? Uh, next week we will be looking at uh, Tim Tim Robbins in the Hudsucker Proxy. Hudsucker Proxy. What a great title. I have no idea. What 1994. That even means. We actually we actually ended up jumping a little bit. So for um, this this month we had Hail Caesar, then Fargo, mm. then we jumped back to Hudsucker Proxy, then we jumped back again to Raising Arizona, which is their second film, and mm. then we jump all the way forward to um, No Country for Old Men. Those will be the movies that we watch this cool. month. And that is a movie that all of my friends freaked out about when it came out, but I never ended up actually watching No Country okay. for Old Men. Yeah, Wars. I never yeah. did. Yeah, wait I just till we know get it's there. Super violent. Yeah. Uh, so next week on Zach on film is Hudsucker Proxy. Mm-hmm. Hudsucker Proxy. Uh, I bet you can <laughs> find a copy of that if you head over to majorspoilers.com, click on that Amazon.com link, and type in Hudson Proxy in the search bar. You'll probably get a nice. Uh, <laughs> Probably won't find it, but if you type in Hudsucker Proxy, oh, Hudsucker you Proxy. definitely will. <laughs> if you type in the right title of the film. Coen Brothers, Tim Robbins. You can, you yeah, can probably find Zach, all the Coen Brothers movies Zach there. Zach is going to end up watching Hudson Hawk. By accident. <laughs> yep. Now that you've yeah. said it, he will. Yes. Uh, so do that. You find any of your favorite Coen Brothers films. It's not going to cost you any extra. Use that Amazon link. Uh, but a little bit of money. Of that money, will come back to Major Spoilers to help keep the great comic book reviews, news, and all sorts of podcasts coming your way each and every day and week from Major Spoilers, which is now 10 years old. Yay. Congratulations, Yay. Stephen. Thanks. That's pretty cool. Pods of casting. Woo. Uh, so that's it for this week's episode of Zach on Film. We'll see you next week. This podcast is copyright 2016 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC.